not so much. Because they changed their mind this week, and now they're not naming that baby Randy, and I'm going into rehab tomorrow for anger management. So anyway, we've gone from Randy with an I, it's a little girl, Randy with an I to Nora. So see the Clays will be happy when they're naming it after their daughter. Nora's a beautiful name, although I had an Aunt Nora that was, how shall I put it, a witch. My Aunt Nora was, as uh, Tony Joe White would say, I know none of you know who Tony Joe White is, great theologian. Tony Joe White said, a straight razor-toting woman. That's who my Aunt Nora was. But we're looking forward to another grandchild, and uh, so we're excited about it. As far as the Tigers, we just continue to pray and blame it on Beverly Hodge. Because she, I know she was there. All right, turn to John chapter 10, if you would. John chapter 10. If you'll take your hand out, just a couple things I want to point out to you, and then we'll get into verse 17 is where we're going to start today. So we've been looking at the great I am statements of Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life. Uh, I, I am living water, on and on. So what we've been looking at the last few weeks is I am the good shepherd. And if you'll notice on your handout, just kind of setting the, the, the context for where we're going to be at point number four today. The last couple of weeks we've looked at number one as the good shepherd. The great I am, I am the good shepherd. Number one, he died for his sheep. We saw that, that his death was selfless, sacrificial, and sufficient. The death of Jesus Christ as our shepherd. Number two, the, the shepherd, the good shepherd, knows his sheep. It's very personal and it's permanent. We talk about it all the time as believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians, when we're sharing our faith with someone, what we're sharing with them is we're not talking about a temporary religion while you're on planet Earth. We're talking about a personal relationship with God that lasts for how long? Forever. It begins on planet Earth, and you're born again, you enter into a relationship with God, you're his child. It's personal. That's why the metaphors that are used in Scripture to describe our relationship with God as his children is that very thing. They're relational terms. We are his children. We call each other brother and sister. We are his bride. We are his family. We are his adopted ones. We are precious to him. On and on, the metaphors that are used to describe our relationship with God as his children are relational, family, intimate, personal terms. That's what Jesus as the good shepherd offers to us. And all of this is done context. Remember the audience is Jewish. In context, saying, I am the good shepherd. I am the true shepherd. I am the door. We dealt with all that. As opposed to the scribes and the Pharisees who are your religious leaders, but they are false shepherds. Talked about last week that they were hirelings. What was a hireling? Someone who was paid to protect and guard the sheep, but as soon as danger approached, what did the hireling do? He took care of the hireling. He took off, he, he ran for the hills. He was only interested in the sheep as long as it personally benefited him. And by the way, there are a lot of sheep, you know, shepherds, that are in that same position today. They're only doing it because it's personal gain, personally benefiting them as opposed to a calling of God on their lives to lead, guide, protect, instruct, and model righteousness for sheep. So we, we've dealt with that. It's a personal relationship. 
and it's permanent. One of the most beautiful things and the whole the emphasis of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by which he conquered sin and death. They are defeated enemies and we can have life both now and forever. And that when we, when we die, we understand as scripture teaches us, as his children, our father welcomes us home. It's Ecclesiastes 7.1 again. It is the best day of my life. If I'm a believer, it's the day I die because I go home. I go back to where God intended me to be. I am a citizen of heaven. On and on, those metaphors, that it's permanent. And then the third thing we looked at is that he unites his sheep. And this is where we left off last week, and it's really special. And we, we talked about it a lot last week. We're not going to do that again today. But the idea of us being one. That there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And remember, the context in which Jesus is teaching this, and later Paul is writing it, is very controversial because Jews had what type of mentality about Gentiles? They hated them. They didn't want anything to do with them. They considered them dogs or less than human. They wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. And then Jesus comes along and says, I have other sheep. Uh-oh. They're not of this flock. They're not Jews, they're Gentiles. And then Paul comes along and writes all that great stuff. And then Peter had to be shown by God in a vision in the home of Cornelius that God is no respecter of persons. That Jesus died for mankind, not just to be the Messiah of the Jews. He's also the Christ of the Gentiles. And so you see point three there that he had, that he unites his flock. There's one shepherd, one voice. As Christians, we listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. He is our shepherd. He's the great shepherd, the good shepherd. So what I'm going to focus on today is point four on your handout. Four and five. Hopefully five. Now we're going to get there. Four and five. So point four is he loves his sheep. We all know God loves us. And the message that we have as Christians that we share with, with non-believers is God loves you. But we need to understand from contextually from Scripture how important that is, how deep that is, how eternal that is. And I'm not talking about just going forward for eternal life. I'm talking about going back in eternity to, to prior to the existence of the universe, the love that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had for each other, three persons, one God, in perfect intimacy, harmony, love, and fellowship we talked a little bit about this last week, that that was Jesus' prayer for us in the upper room discourse in his great high priestly prayer, that we could be one like he was with the Father, picturing that for us. So let's, let's look at this idea, starting at verse 17, that Jesus loves his sheep. So context you. Let's read 17 and 18 and talk about it. 17. Therefore my Father loves me, God the Father loves God the Son, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Well, if you just start reading in verse 17, just read it again, I mean 18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. Now go back to 17. My Father loves me because I lay down my life. I lay down my life. I lay down my life. So if you just start out with that, Jesus begins with, my Father loves me. Because I lay down my life. 
So in other words, Jesus had to, if you take it out of context, pull it out of context, and look at it, is Jesus saying God loves me because I'm dying on the cross? No, he's making a point, and it's a very important point. Did God's love have conditions? No. Does God love you despite your sin? He absolutely does. He loves you despite your sin. That's what grace is. For God so loved the world that he gave. Why? He gave his only begotten son that what, what we might have through him. Eternal life. He loved us. When Romans 5, when we were his enemies, when we were helpless, when we were ungodly, when we wanted nothing to do with him, when we were his literal enemies, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He provided atonement, and all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. He didn't have to earn the Father's love. Here's the picture he's painting. I am loved by the Father, and what he loves about me, specifically in this context, as the good shepherd, is that I'm willing to die for the sins of mankind. I'm willing to go through the crucifixion. I'm willing to finish the great eternal, prior to there being an Adam and Eve, eternal plan of redemption. God sees everything simultaneously. Wrap your mind around that for a second. Let me help you. You can't. Because you're finite. He's infinite. He saw us sitting here today, looking at John 10, studying it together at the same time he was talking to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden saying, where are you? He saw that at the same time he sees us, just like he sees tomorrow. He sees next Thursday. He sees eternity. All of it, God sees the end from the beginning. He sees it all at the same time. He's infinite. He's outside time. One of the things I love about trying to, to wrap myself around the mind of God is it helps me to know that I'm not real smart. You've heard me say, if, if you never remember anything else I've said, when I'm gone at my funeral, I want everybody to say the following. There are two great truths in the universe. Number one, there is a God. And number two, you're not it. You're not it. And aren't you glad you're not? You know, I look, my friend Darren, my brother Darren, I was laughing about Darren this week. I was looking at some pictures on my phone. My grandchildren, one of them popped up where we were in St. Louis buying ugly shirts. And he, he, he still got his ugly shirt. I don't know what happened with mine. But we were, we were in there buying these ugly St. Louis Cardinal shirts together. It just makes me laugh every time I see that shirt. And also, that's the way you do know there's a God is the St. Louis Cardinals are, are, have won 15 games in a row, whatever it is. That's, uh, that, that proves there's a God right there. So, there's my brother, and I trust him. If he told me he was going to do something, I know he, with all his ability, he would try to do it. But guess what? Can he let me down? It's possible. I can't think of a time that he has, but if I thought real hard, I probably couldn't. He's a friend. He's a brother. He's someone that I trust. But he can let me down as much as I trust him. God is my father, whom I trust to redeem me, through his son, and the difference between Darren and my father is I know he can't let me down and has already told me he never would, 
Derek could tell me that, but he might forget. He might make a mistake. Not even trying to be cruel, he could let me down. But my father doesn't even have the capacity in his nature to let me down. He is eternally, perfectly good. I want to be good. Think about the Apostle Paul for a moment. And we all admire the Apostle Paul, and we study his writings, and God used him mightily to take the gospel historically to all over Europe, and the apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote so much of, of the New Testament. We admire him. How did he describe himself? Chief among sinners. In Romans he says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? You know what Paul was? Like us. He was a sinner. Saved by grace, given a job by God, who struggled with sin. Aren't you glad? I'm not glad that the man struggled with sin. What I'm glad is that he was normal. Because I struggle. You struggle. But Jesus doesn't. He's perfect. When he was on earth, he was tempted in every way I am, yet without sin. What's beautiful about that is the word empathy. That's literally what empathy is. When I'm struggling with a sin, Jesus not only knows about it, he's omniscient, he also can empathize with me because he struggled with that. He struggled in, with temptation, but he never gave in. Have I ever given in? Of course. I was talking with a young man this morning, and he was talking about people saying, I don't want to go to church, it's full of hypocrites. You know what? They're right. It is full of hypocrites. Why? Because I'm a sinner saved by grace. That doesn't mean I'm perfect, but who is? Jesus is. My Savior is. We follow him and we deal with our imperfections. And we're honest with them. We know we're forgiven, positionally declared righteous in Christ. I love, we talked about before, what Corey Ten Boom said, God says, I take your sins, sins are a marvel, remove them as far as the east is from the west, and I remember them no more. I throw them in the depths of the ocean, and they're forgotten about. Corey Ten Boom says, God throws them in the, in the depths of the ocean, and then he plants a sign that says, no fishing. No fishing. What does Satan want to do? He wants to use like false shepherds and others to just constantly bring up your imperfections. I know I have them. God knows I have them. And Satan wants to bring them up to defeat me, to keep me down, to keep me unfocused, not targeting what God wants me to do. Realizing we're one body, that we're united. But back to this point of being loved. Jesus didn't have to earn the Father's love. He eternally had it. But he willingly, and this is so important, we're going to hit this over and over again because Jesus does in this passage. I lay down my life volitionally. I choose to do so. I lay it down. I lay it down. I lay it down, and I also have the power to do what? Take it again. Take it again. Remember what he said? Destroy this body, and in what? Three days, I, I, will raise it up. In other words, you can kill me, and you will. But guess what? I'm coming back. A lot of people have threatened that. He did it. 
He did it. Next week, we're going to begin to look at him raising Lazarus from the dead. Wouldn't you like to have been there that day? He walks up to the cemetery and says, Lazarus, come here. And a corpse comes walking out of that tomb. That might have got your attention. That might have made you think, whoa, this is, this is a special man. Yet they still struggled with their faith. Jesus had the eternal love of God, chose to lay down his life. Look at John 13 for just a moment. Just flip over a couple of pages to John 13. This is the beginning of that upper room discourse we alluded to a moment ago, which is in 17, the high priestly prayer, 13 through 17. Notice the beginning of it, historically, this moment. This is the last Passover Jesus talks about that he fervently desired to eat with his disciples, this last Passover before he died. Notice what, how it begins, 13.1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, it's one of the most important statements in all the Bible and in all of history, is that Jesus knew his hour had come. Because if you go back through the Gospels, over and over again his disciples kept saying, are you going to be... Go, go up to Jerusalem. His own family members, his own brothers and sisters, are you going up to Jerusalem at this feast and announce that you're the Messiah? And what did he say every time? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Then you get to John 13, 1. Passover. And what does he say here? Jesus knowing that his hour had come. Here it is. This is the hour of redemption that he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit had planned since prior to creation of the universe. The eternal plan of redemption that he pictured so many times in the Old Testament and he spoke to Satan in the Garden of Eden after original sin when he said, you're going to bruise his heel, says to Satan, but he, the son, the seed of the woman is going to come, you're going to bruise his heel and he's going to do what? Crush your head. When Jesus rose from the dead, Satan was crushed as an enemy. Still allowed to exist, but defeated forever. That's the hour. The hour had come. Verse 1 again. That he should depart from this world to the Father, finishing the plan. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Drop down to verse, to the end. Drop down to verse 31. 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, 13, 31, now the Son of Man is glorified. That means in Greek, a correct estimate of what something is worth. You're about to see who the Messiah is. The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. You're about to see what, who God really is, what it means that I am God. Behold, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Everything that our series is about. Verse 32, if God is glorified in, if God is glorified in him, the Son, God will also glorify the Son in himself and glorify him immediately. Here it is, the hour, the time for the Son and the Father to be glorified. Go to chapter 14 for just a moment. Look at verse 31. 14, 31. Again, same upper room discourse where he's with the 11 disciples, preparing them for his departure so they can carry on, 1431. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise. Let us go from here. Let us leave the upper room, and let's go do what I got to do. Now back to chapter 10. 
the love he's talking about. Jesus obeyed the Father. Remember in, remember in Gethsemane? He's got Peter, James, and John with him, and he's going, he's agonizing over going to the cross. He's sweating blood. He's in such deep agony, overtaking on the debt of every sin ever committed. Think about that. All the sin debt, he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's at that moment. He knows what's about to happen. And he says, go, I'm going to go over here and pray. I want you guys to pay attention and watch what they do. Fell asleep. They let him down. And in that moment, what does he pray to the Father? It is so emotional, so gut-wrenching, but it shows you how much he loved you. What does he pray to the Father? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. If it's possible, I don't want to do this in the flesh, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey. And that's why you see at his baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration, at his baptism, you see Jesus being baptized and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and you hear the voice of the Father, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what, does the, what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Father loved the Son. And the Son loved the Father. It's not about conditions. It was about existence. That's why what we have to share with people the gospel is so important because what we're sharing with someone is despite your sin, despite your rebellion, despite the fact you were born in rebellion against God, you have a sin nature. God loves you unconditionally. Jesus died for you. He paid the debt you cannot pay, that you owe, that you cannot ever pay by your own merit and your own works. He paid that debt for you so that in him you could be the righteousness of God, declared in righteous, his child, and be given heaven as your eternal home and peace on earth. We talk about it Christmas. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. D.A. Carson, theologian, put it this way. The love of the Father for the Son is eternal linked with the unqualified, eternally linked with the unqualified obedience of the Son to the Father, his utter dependence upon him, culminating in the greatest act of obedience before him, willingness to bear the shame of Golgotha, the isolation and rejection of death, the sin and curse reserved, reserved for the Lamb of God. For the Lamb of God. Here's the point. We say Jesus loved you. We sing the song and we quote the verses. It's the greatest act of love in the history of humanity when God deemed to become a human being and take our punishment, our wrath, our deserved hell. He, he took the separation from God on himself, on his own back, allowed himself to be tortured to death willingly. Remember what he told Pilate? Pilate said, don't you know who I am? I could stop this. I have the authority to do so. What did Jesus say? No, you don't. The only authority you have is, was given to you. And here's the picture. That's why we celebrated at Passover. It's so important. He went to the slaughter 
silently, fulfilling prophecy, a lamb to the slaughter, the Passover lamb, willingly, volitionally chose to allow himself to be tortured to death because he loved Randy Lockley. And man, if that doesn't humble you and get you excited about your faith, I don't think anything can. He loved you that much. That's something that you can tell people. Now, we're not, if you want to fight over this version of the Bible, or you want to fight over uh, this theology, fine, fight over it. But don't fight over how, who Jesus Christ is. He loved you. He who knew no sin became your sin debt that you could, could become the righteousness of God in him. Back to verse 18. Here's a bullet point on there. He willingly died. We've talked about it over and over. Repeated theme of Jesus here. He was sovereign God. He was in control. I have power to lay it down. Look at verse 17 one more time. My father loves me because I lay down my life again that I may take it again. He chose to do so. And then because he was omnipotent God, he came back from the dead to conquer it, to conquer sin and death. Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite, you know how much I love Philippians. This is one of my favorite passages in the book of Philippians. It's called the great self-emptying passage or kenosis passage in Greek. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, says this. As Paul writes to them, let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, end quote. He humbled himself. He did it willingly. I mean, the Romans thought they were doing it, Pilate. No. The Jews thought they were doing it. No. He chose to do it because he loved me and he loved you. He was God, omnipotent God, and he humbled himself. That's why the greatest character attribute any human being can have, and especially a Christian, and especially a Christian leader, is humility. Humility. You know what humility means? In the, the, the Romans didn't even have a word to describe Humility of Jesus Christ or Christians. They had to come up with one. And you know what it means? It means I don't even think of myself at all. It's not about me ever. It's just what can I do for you? And that's why if you go on and read that passage, we didn't read the rest of it, but then it says that God has given him the name that's above all names, has exalted him, Jesus, who is willingly died, has exalted him above all given the name that's above all names, that at the name of Jesus, future tense, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess or agree that he's what? Lord. It means master of all to the glory of God the Father. That's who your Savior is. That's what we have to share with people that's different. It's not what they think. It's not church. It's not religion. It's a personal relationship with God because he loves you so much. He willingly died. Second point is he conquered sin. Look at verse 18. 
No one takes it from me. I lay it down to myself. I have the power to take it again, and I have the power to take it again. This command I've received from my Father. I lay it down. I'm going to take it again. Turn to Hebrews for just a moment. We're going to come right back here. And you flip over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews is one of the most fascinating books in the Bible. We don't even know who wrote it. But it was written to Jews who had become Christians. The audience that Jesus is talking to. Written to Jews who had become Christians but were struggling with the old ways. They, they, they were being told, yes, you, Jesus is the Messiah, but you also have to keep the law. You also have to keep the Levitical priesthood. You have to also do all of these things. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to them and saying, whoa, 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 no. Christ our high priest is superior to the Levitical priesthood. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the law. Those things were shadows. He's the substance. You don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. You don't have to have an earthly temple. You are the temple. On and on. So look at what he says in Hebrews 2, verse 8. The idea of conquering sin. 2.8. You put all things in subjection under his feet. 2.8. For in that he put all things in subjection to him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now we do not yet see all things put under him. Now go to verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, and that means human beings, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, original sin, that's what he told Satan he was going to do, then he came and he did it. Release those, and that's us, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, human beings. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. He died for human beings. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, human beings, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. And that means satisfaction for judgment, propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's the point. Go back to John now. I had the power to lay it down. I had the power to take it again. My father gave me this command I have obeyed. He had the power to set us free. We don't fear death in him because he conquered death. Our sin is paid for, forgiven in him because he conquered sin. I do a lot of funerals. You've heard me talk about that for years. And the hardest ones to do, and yet the ones I love to do maybe the most, I can't say I love to do them more, but I'm more burdened about them, is when I'm doing the funeral of people who aren't Christians. They don't know where their hope is. They just think maybe we need to have a preacher do the funeral. Because what can I share with them? There's hope. You don't have to be afraid to die. Because Jesus took care of that. It's not about going to church and turning over your leaf and giving money and being a good person. It's about coming to him and saying, like the thief on the cross, Lord, would you have mercy on me? Would you have mercy on me? And, and I love, it's just so poignant. What did Jesus say to him? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Today. 
when moments before that same thief was mocking Jesus and laughing at him and saying, why don't you save yourself and us? And then he suddenly, it clicks and he repents and Jesus said, today, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. He loved that thief who was laughing at him and mocking him. The people at the foot of the cross that had been torturing him all day long, what did he say about them? In his prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. What, we, what would we have been saying? Father, get them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I love them too. Peter, in the very first sermon ever preached called In the Church Age, the book of Acts, chapter 2, says these words. He's preaching at Jerusalem to Jews. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through Jesus, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of the wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Just read in Hebrews, the thing that every human being fears, even though they don't admit it, is death. What's beyond the grave? There's only one group of people that doesn't fear that. It's Christians. Because we know whom we have believed. And we know he's able to keep that we've committed unto him against that day. We have eternal life. He gave it to us. He promised to us. He said, nobody's going to take you out of my hand. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. You're here. I got you. You're mine. That's the message the church has. It's that Romans 8.28 principle. I want you to think for a moment. Romans 8.28 says God is always working good in the lives of those who love him. I want you to think back for a moment with me to the crucifixion and Jesus' followers. He'd been, he had spent the night before in the upper room with those 11 guys. We've talked about it over and over, getting them ready for his departure. Kept saying, let not your heart be troubled. Why, was he, why did he keep saying that? Because their hearts were troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. And then he said to them, I got to go away. And I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I got to go away. And they go, where are you going? I'm going to come back for you. We're going to be together. I'm going to get your place ready. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. It's going to be in you and with you. They were still terrified. So now fast forward. They're at the cross, at the crucifixion. Here's Jesus. He's been butchered all day, beaten beyond recognition. His vital organs have been exposed by the scourging that he's taken. They're crucifying him. If you know anything about crucifixion, it's the most horrific way to die a man's ever devised to torture another man to death. He's trying to breathe, and he can't. Put, you try to put, and eventually your heart explodes. They're watching him die, the ones that were there. Where were most of them? In hiding. They had fled because they thought he was the Messiah, and now they're thinking... I guess he wasn't. I'm going to go back fishing. We'll go see if I can get a job collecting taxes again. They thought it was over. 
please don't miss this moment because this principle, the Romans 8.28 principle, not written yet at this moment, but so true. God's always working good. When it was the darkest, God was in the process of doing the greatest. It's like the old preacher said, it was good, you know why it was Good Friday? Because Sunday was coming. The Friday when he was crucified was the most horrific day in the history of the human race, with this one exception. It had to happen to pay for my sin. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. But now Christ is risen and set us free in him. When it seems the darkest, God is working good all the time. We may not even see the good until we get to eternity. But we know he's always working good and we trust him. Last point, number five on your handout, and we'll be done. I can't get through before noon because they'd be wrong. I think that's in the Bible somewhere. Number five, Jesus challenges his sheep. Verse 19. Jesus says all this about taking that over and over again. I lay it down, I lay it down, I lay it down. Now verse 19. Therefore, therefore, I love it. There it is. There was a division again among the Jews because of these things. I bet there was. And you see this over and over. Many of them said, he's got a demon and he's mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? There was a division among them. These sayings, Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed about the hirelings that are there in the midst, even as he's saying these words. Here's the division. Some of them are saying, dude is crazy. He's got a demon. Why are y'all even listening to him? He's crazy. But notice the response. Others said, wait a minute. These are not the words of a crazy man. And these are not the works of a crazy man. Let's go back and look at all the good things he's done. And you can go back through John yourself and see him. Time after time after time, incredible miracles. Always doing good. When he healed somebody, there was no doubt. In John chapter 9, healing the man with congenital blindness. I love that story for a lot of reasons. You know what my favorite part of that story is? I think we talked about it when we did earlier. The Pharisees bring him in. They kick the dude out of the synagogue because he doesn't agree with them that Jesus is a sinner. He doesn't, this is not a theological giant. This is a guy who's been begging his entire life because he can't see. And he's totally dependent on people giving him money and helping him. And then Jesus comes along and says to him, what? Sets him free. Heals him. And he can immediately see. And so then the Pharisees drag him in and say, all right, admit he's a sinner. And what does the guy say? I'm going to give it to you in my language. He said, listen, guys, I don't know. I, tell you, I only know one thing. I couldn't see, and now I can. Don't you love that? You can't question that. All I know is Jesus gave me my eyesight. What have you done for me? All you've done is beat me down. He gave me my eyesight. If you were a blind man, you've been blind your entire life, what's the only thing you wanted? I want to be able to see. 
And Jesus gave me the one thing I wanted. And then it's so beautiful in the story. They kick him out of the synagogue. And if you were a Jew, that's the worst possible thing that could happen to you. They excommunicated him. And the Bible says Jesus went and found him. See it? The religious leader said, we want nothing to do with you. You're out. At the greatest moment in the guy's life, they should have been rejoicing with him. And then Jesus hunts him down just to let him know, I love you. I didn't just heal you. I love you. Jesus didn't just save you to leave you alone. He's right in the middle of your fire, your pandemic, whatever you're facing. He's in the middle of it with you and always will be there. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel? They look into the fiery furnace. They don't see three people. They see how many? Four. And these pagans say, you know, that fourth one in there looks a lot like the son of the gods. Jesus was walking around in the fire with them. I love that story. Because when they came out, the Bible says they didn't, they didn't even smell like smoke. Only thing burned on them were what they had tied them. Only thing that was burned on them were the bondage that the men had put on them. Jesus set them free. He went through the fire with them and set them free. Now there's challenge to us. Jesus himself said these words. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth in the sense they, they were looking for it. I didn't come to bring peace like that. I came to bring a sword. If I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I can understand maybe the last part. I'm just a man's enemies will be the ones of his own household. End quote. Why did Jesus say that? Because he wanted them to understand I have to be your number one priority. In another place he said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to hate your father and mother. He didn't mean literal. You have to understand literal in the sense of which it was intended. Here's what he's saying. If you're going to follow me, there are going to be people in your own family that will have nothing to do with you. You've got to make a decision. Are you going to follow me or not? I've got family members that, that have since I was 16 years old. That they don't ever talk to me. Randy's got religion. He thinks he's better than we are. I'm sorry. I, I don't think I'm better than them. I think I've experienced grace and forgiveness, and I want them to know that. Jesus said, you've got to understand, you're going to follow me? It's not going to be easy. Remember, he told them, that here's the standard for following me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. In other words, you deny yourself, come on up, you're going to be killed, and you enter out. And the very next verse in the Bible says, many followed him no more. Of course they didn't. They didn't want to get killed. He says, you've got to take this seriously. And then the last verse, and we're done, I'll share a quick story with you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says this. It's contained in Scripture, and he quotes the Old Testament, Peter does. I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, Christians, believers, he's precious. To those who are disobedient, he's the stone which the builders rejected. He's become the chief cornerstone a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word which they were appointed. You, believers, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but you are now the people of God. 
You, you had once not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. Bottom of your handout. They were saying Jesus was crazy, and the bottom line is this. Jesus' words are not those of a crazy man. Jesus' words are not demonic. Sheep would be crazy not to follow the good shepherd. Because if you don't follow the good shepherd, you're ultimately going to lose your life if you're a sheep. I'll tell you a true story, and then this may hit home with some of you. I know it did with me, and then we're done. This guy was talking about his family, and he said, this, I'm going to read you the quote from him. He said, everybody in our family knew that Uncle John couldn't pray without talking about the cross and crying. Sure enough, they were at Thanksgiving dinner. Sure enough, Uncle John starts praying, talking about the cross and crying. Meanwhile, the rest of us shifted nervously from one foot to the other and longed for the prayer to end. All of us knew that Jesus had died on the cross for us. But Uncle John had never forgotten it. See the difference? We all know it. But how many of us dwell on it? In my own prayer life, at about 1.30 this morning I was praying. And it always, when I pray, I always end up or begin at this spot. Jesus, thank you for dying for Randy. Thank you. I, I don't know what else to say except... Lord, I'm grateful. I'll never face anything greater than being crucified. And Jesus will be with me whatever it is I face. He's the good shepherd. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we thank you for the good shepherd. Thank you for our Savior. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In my limited, finite vision, I, 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 I don't understand, and oftentimes I miss what you're doing. But never let me, let, never let us forget you're always doing good because you're the good shepherd. You love us. You take care of us. You protect us. You guide us. You feed us. may not be what we want, but you're the good shepherd, so it's always the best. I pray as Christians we'd be motivated by that, to love and to share our faith with others, let them know what it means to have a shepherd like this. Because most people don't even understand what it means. We thank you for the good shepherd, and we pray in his name. Amen. Please stand with us as we close out our time together. <clears throat>